For listeners of Film Jive, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. To do so, you can simply go to audibletrial.com slash filmjive. That's audibletrial.com slash filmjive to claim your free audiobook download today. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Film Jive Podcast. I'm your host Zach Patanti and joining me on today's show are co-hosts Andrew Swope and Simone Barros. We are recording on June 19th, 2016. This is episode number 96 where we are discussing Jean Cocteau's 1946 fantasy film La Belle et la Bête, or as it's known in its English translation, Beauty and the Beast, starring Josette Day and Jean Marais. Même le parquet veut devenir votre miroir. Et cette bête parle le langage des hommes. Qu'est-ce qu'elle boit Qu'est-ce qu'elle mange Il m'arrive de lui donner à boire. Nous devons tuer la bête et prendre ses richesses. Mais tu sais ce que c'est qu'une puissance magique The opening images of Jean Cocteau's La Belle et la Bête are not of an enchanted woodland revealing a distant, archaic fortress, but rather Cocteau and his lead performers at the chalkboard, inscribing titles of the cast and crew. A camera slate follows, interrupted by a scrolling text, which asks the audience to resurrect their childlike wonder and accept the illusion of fairy tales. While many have interpreted these opening images as an attempt to suppress French critics of the time or suspend the disbelief of the film's predominantly adult audience, I can't help but consider Cocteau's origins as a member of the avant-garde theater, a domain where explanation is divine rule and the introduction of new artistic practices is essential. Cocteau once said, Poetry of the theater should be a coarse lace, a lace of ropes, a ship at sea suggesting that by knowing how a performance, or in this case, a film functions, allows for the greatest depth of engagement. We as the audience are concurrently aware of the real and the unreal, that each moment has been carefully manipulated. This self-reflexive practice appears throughout Cocteau's body of work, whether it be the prologue of the blood of a poet, or the closing images within Orpheus where death exits stage left of an ancient Greek theater. Even the creators and practitioners of the art remain in a state of continual perception. Returning to La Belle et la Bête, Cocteau mobilizes his audience once again, asking us not to just immerse ourselves in the world of of the fairy tale, but also immerse ourselves into the fairy tale's own narration. With this in mind, I'd like to begin our conversation by asking in what other ways does Cocteau achieve this paradox of permitting cinema's dramatic inclinations while also placing its machinations on display. Well, I think one of the most largest ways that he does that is um, with the Great Hall, with it being sort of this black void and the arms that are holding the candelabras as you lighting your path as you approach them. We're sort of seeing the mechanism at the same time that we're caught up in the mechanism being, you know, an otherworldly kind of, uh, it takes you into fantasy, but at the same time, it's it's a, a sort of transparent fantasy. You know, a lot of the things that happen in uh, The Beast's Castle almost exposes the formless nature of the of film itself. The slow motion of her uh, entering the house with the billowy curtains, uh, when it's obvious she's not walking down the hall, but she's being pulled by a trolley. Uh, when she puts the glove on and goes back home, uh, the reversal of them 
flying in the air is actually just film reversed and them falling. It almost highlights what movie magic is. Yeah, I definitely think the human form within the film's spatial architecture, even something as deliberate as the tree branches that come in and out of frame as if they're disembodied props that are deliberately obscuring the frame and then they move when Cocteau wants to reveal something. I, I even think that's why we see a literal set change like the removal of the furniture in the chateau during the scene where the debt collectors arrive at the family's home. I feel like throughout the film, it's just there's this continual re- revealing of the the filmmaking apparatus. And I completely interpret the opening credits not so much as a suspension to a plea to suspend disbelief, but rather convince the audience to believe by paradoxically striving for realism within fantasy. I think I read that Cocteau told the cinematographer and designer to capture the reality of magic. That was what he wanted to do visually with the film. And I think that's really tantamount to understanding the visual language, you know, and, and I think it's very similar to how audiences, uh, engage with theater you don't just engage with the fantasy on stage but also the stage itself you admire the curtain opening and closings the rearranging of sets uh, and you're kind of fully aware of the the human body's role in those changes there's also like a a sense of uh adrenaline even for the audience you know my wife works in theater so i see a lot of her work at least and uh I'm always on the edge in case of wardrobe failure or set <laughs> failure or actors making a mistake to the point where it becomes almost like a spectator sport. I'm more than just watching the, the play itself. There's like a tight tightrope walk while watching it where is this going to succeed or is there going to be failure, at least for me? I agree with, with both of you that there's a theatrical history to what Jean Cocteau does in the in the credits, he almost makes a prologue. And in, in a traditional theatrical prologue, you do announce that you're on the stage. You announce the story. Shakespeare and his Romeo and Juliet prologue, he tells you the entire story. And he even says, you know, in Fair Verona, where we lay our scene, he uses very specific words to call attention to the stage. He says, you know, is now the two hours traffic of our stage. So it's very much a part of theater that you you begin with a prologue. You open and say, you know, this is what we're about to see. This is the world we're about to create. And I don't think it's a disclaimer so much as in, in La Belle and La Bette, it's a invitation to the audience to co-create with the players, um, to lend yourself to the creation of the story. And that's what does happen in theater. There, There's this feeling that the audience is participating with this and the players and the stage. And I think that, you know, Coteau is calling upon, Coteau is calling upon that. There also is a poetic history to it where a lot of the epic poems begin with, I'll tell you a tale. So there's this awareness of storyteller and listener and then this story that we're about to embark on. But I guess then the question is, do you think the film, these elements of theater that you're both talking about, do you think the film contains that kind of tension, that anxiety? Do you feel like a co-creator in the, in the unraveling of the story itself? Well, yes, definitely. Um, in when we enter into the castle... As we see arms and we see even the arm at the table, you know, we're meant to react to that arm the same way that the merchant reacts to that arm. But also when we're in the merchant's yard with his sisters after Belle has been living with Labette for a while, we see the laundry now becomes a screen where shadows are played, shadow figures are played. And then we see those same laundry become curtains that people enter in and exit through. So I think we're definitely, um, the way we're positioned, the way the camera is positioned, we are invited to participate in this theatrical creation. But is there ever a moment where you feel like an actor is going to accidentally trip. <laughs> well, I sort of laughed at some of the things that I think 
melodramas have taken from this film, even though melodrama existed before this film, but later melodramas and definitely soap operas, which are which are melodramas. I mean, I don't know if that they're taking it from this film. I think that was that was a tradition embedded in film at this point already. Well, but I think there is an invitation to the audience when Avenot says when he gives his proposal to Belle, he holds her, but he looks past her toward the camera and says, I love you. Then he looks at her and says, will you marry me? And he does that a few times in these these very staged, you know, positions where his gaze is falling upon us. And, and yes, that we see that in melodrama and we just see that that's a style of performing. But I think it's being, whereas I think that's a choice for Jean Cocteau to direct him that way, because when we see Orpheus, he doesn't direct Jean Marais that way at all. One thing you mentioned regarding the statues, uh, I guess I, I had a different reaction to the human statues in the film than you did in that I didn't so much see the statues as something that we were supposed to react to, but more so the statues are, they're the audience of that world as we are the audience of this film. And the statues are the observers of this story. But the statue makes the... I guess, like, the final play, I mean, the climax happens because of the actions of a statue, which is the actions of the audience, then. Uh, yeah, that's true. The statue is enacting the action that the audience is desiring at that moment. No, I think you're correct in that they have some voyeur uh, aspect to them in a, in a Greek, and I think there's calling, they're calling upon this in that the, the statue is even called Diane's Pavilion, so it's a reference to the goddess Diane, which is a Roman god, in Roman and Greek plays, the chorus, which oftentimes stands on the stage throughout the duration, you know, pose like statues, but then they comment and watch. Uh, so I do think that that voyeur aspect is present with the statues in the castle. But I do also think that they are part of the enchantment. The fairy, the original fairy tale has this invisible servant that's, you know, moving throughout the castle, these invisible, you know, her hair is combed in the fairy tale by invisible fairies or servants of the castle, that the entire castle is enchanted along with Beast. So I think that this was Jean Cocteau's cinematic visualization of the enchanted servants that are moving in the castle. And I think he connected them with a Greek chorus and so allowed this watching. I definitely think that they're the way their eyes move. It's very back in the back frame of the camera, but then there's a shot of them in which we then see confirmation. Yes, what you thought you saw is what you saw. So I think that there, it's serving both function of being the audience, being the voyeur, but also being this participating enchanted character. It's, it's surprising to me when, when Diane kills Avenot with her arrow. It's an arrow that enters into the, sp into the female space in the beginning with Belle and her sisters. And it's also an arrow that then Avenot uses when he is, you know, making his advances to Belle. He, he like even kind of traps her in his arms with the arrow as a barricade. So the fact that then later he's even killed by the arrow, I think, is, is intentional and part of a, a larger metaphor of male and female interaction sexually and in relationships. I think there's a great deal of this film's imagery that evokes a lot of similarities to um, Maya Durin's trance films of the 40s, like Meshes of the Afternoon and At Land, partially because they employ similar visual symbols like the key, but also a characteristic that defines trance film is the alteration of space where the character's actions change the narrative status quo, and that affects the mise-en-scene. I think in this film, it's less surreal and more organically rooted, where you have Belle leaves the chateau. The next scene we see of the chateau is the pillaging of its furniture. Uh, but I also think Avenon's shattering of the pavilion ceiling that awakens the, stat the statue of Diane, which leads to his death. I don't know who influenced who necessarily. I mean, I think Maya Durin is already making films by this point. 
but I definitely think that seats this film some tan and tangentially a part of some tradition. They both express Jean Cocteau and um, Maya Duran both express that they are trying to create poetry. So that may also root into why we're, you see these similarities between them. And I agree with you. I, I think an example of the similarity in movement, the way Maya Duran moves and the way we see Belle move is in the scene that Andy just noted of her moving past the windows and the castle and the curtains are billowing and she's moving kind of in a floating, you know, motion and definitely as in Meshes of the Afternoon, but also in Rights, I forget the full title of the film, but Maya Duran, um, she moves in this, you know, floating kind of space. And also the physicality of the actresses express their emotional state, um, which is very much also part of both of those films. So I don't know if they were in direct conversation, but there is absolutely a shared conversation i'm curious um in the middle of the film when she goes back to her father she starts dressing like she did at the beginning of the movie there's the scene where the two sisters walk in in her room and she's like staring at herself in a mirror and she's dressed in the opulent fashion with the crown and everything isn't that in a way almost like her showing her true intentions there even though she's back at home and she's back in her say servant's outfit when no one else is watching she's revealing her true self which is the opulent dress, which I almost thought when I, the, the Danny Peary uh, essay kind of mentions like kind of like a false modesty of Belle. And that even comes into play at the end where she's almost coy with the way that she talks to the prince, where he's like, are you happy I look like him? And no, well, yeah. It's almost like a, like a, a flirtatious tease that she ultimately has. And that scene where she does dress in that opulent fashion when no one else is around. I almost think that's like her true self. And we only get those in those like little character moments. It is an interesting scene because you're right. Her sisters come in and even tease her for it. And they say exactly that. Because even the way that she asks for the rose when her father leaves, it's almost like she's deliberately asking for a simple gift. There may be a dubious quality that Jean Cocteau is bringing in um, that isn't present in the fairy tales to Belle's character. Um, which could be supported by when she looks into the mirror, which is supposed to show your true self, she sees the beast. I don't think the mirror is necessarily about showing one's true self. I think it's more showing one their unconscious thoughts. So, and just when we see the princesses, I mean, when we see her sisters and we see an, an old haggard woman well, yeah, because that's who her sisters are. That when the one sister also does ask for a monkey earlier in the film, right? So she does have monkey on the brain. <laughs> the first time Belle looks into the mirror, oh, she sees right. her she ailing sees her father. father. So it's just whatever that person is thinking about on a subconscious. Not so much what is your true self. I don't feel. Yeah, so I, I I guess that's fine if if then the interpretation is that the sisters see what is the makeup of their mind, where their concerns and their concerns are with fear of aging and fear of foolishness. But even if it is just what's on your mind, then there is this internal dubious quality that what's on her mind is the beast, and and there could be a sense of alignment with that that she has a dubious nature. I don't quite understand her, you know, rejection of Avignon. I know that it's given to me in the dialogue that she is being loyal to her father, but... Well, I I think it's more than that. Part of what I think starts to complicate the ending and marrying Avignon with the beast and the prince is, yes, because her response is so mercurial, but it's also because... The scenes that Belle shares with Avenue throughout the film, Josette Day performs or reacts to his advances with a palpable discomfort. The initial scene where he puts her, puts his arms around her, she is uncomfortable with his advance. Now, I suppose there's a reading of that. You know, there is this sort of uh, Oedipal subtext going on regarding the father and that part of her loyalty with her father is 
not willing to i guess upset uh, accept the the sexual maturation that she's going through but part of what's so interesting about the ending of the film and all the bait and switching is that I think to some degree it could perhaps be, and maybe you'll disagree, that the resemblance between Avenue and the Prince is manufactured through Belle's own subjectivity, that she's applying her own desires onto the physicality of the Prince. The only reason why I don't, the only reason I don't agree with that is because Avignon becomes the beast, and Bell never sees that. Isn't that kind of outside of Bell, though? It doesn't seem like the beast is in control of his own fate. Mm-hmm. So it's whatever the enchantment of that castle is dictating. I guess, like, I always read it as they, like, transmorphized each other. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, there's that shot, absolutely. Um, I think her initial reaction to the substitution of the beast to the prince is, I think, a state of confusion. To some degree, that's like it's that's intentionally designed to reveal how over determined moments like this in fairy tales can be. But I also think it interrupts the male gaze of the film because really, Belle throughout the movie is always seen through the perspective of the beast. Even the way that like scenes are staged, for instance, when she eats at dinner, the beast comes in and is like, "May I watch you eat." There's this always this sense of that she's being watched by a man. I think suddenly maybe the the end, the substitution has more to do with like we're seeing the woman's desire on screen. But I think I think the contradiction is in the way that Josette Day plays scenes with Avano earlier in the film. Right. And I and even when he transforms, she's not as passionate about it. If if we saw pa- I mean the most passionate that she is is when she's urging the beast to not die and she's insisting you know she's she's driving she's tearful you know but she's very emphatic stand up get use your claws i think she says at one point and then when he becomes you know when he becomes the prince and has the face of avenel she's very passive and non-committal it's it's actually interesting something that film the filmmaker Catherine Reliot, I've read talk about when she was talking about making Sleeping Beauty, she mentions how much she loves uh, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. And her interpretation of the film was that Belle's gaze transfigures his appearance because she no longer fears him. And that's who she, and now she's fallen in love with him. And that when people fall in love, their subjectivity of of the person exaggerates the qualities in that person. And that's what makes them attractive or fascinating. As soon as she finds the beast attractive and fascinating, that's when he suddenly becomes Prince Charming. I think that that... But I I also think maybe what's simultaneously happening is that as soon as he becomes Prince Charming, her vision of him maybe fades. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily take the ending of the film as like a, a triumph. That interpretation is best supported by the scene where she's fighting for him to be alive. Both of them are in close-ups. He's in an extreme tight close-up. His nose is like running. His eye, one of his eyes is small. Like he, he does not look like this romantic figure. And yet the way she's leaning into him and that both of them are in close-up, they, they're at their most... It is where we both fall in love, or at least where my emotion gets caught up as an audience member in falling in love with them as a couple. And it's where I believe she really loves him as he is. That at this point, do you really fall in love with them as a couple? At that moment, yes. That it, none, no other part of the film do I really, except for when his hands are smoking and he says that he want he doesn't want her to see him this way, and she stands in the door and she becomes very aggressive with him. I like that scene. That scene, they seem like equals. As much as he's a beast, she too can be um, in command and not afraid of him. 
but then it it is kind of deflated in the in the conversation once he changes even his body language it just to me i think that it all of that and so it it hampers the interpretation because then she doesn't have any more control over him i don't think it's a projection of her own attraction um because yes like you said her earlier scenes with avino she doesn't express attraction toward him and then when he becomes a man who looks like avino again she does she even she even walks away from him her blocking her body language moves away and then he pulls her sure. back toward him. My question is though, is there really enough evidence to support why the why the beast is in love with her? I feel like what the the end of the film comes to embody is a love of objectification. She's being objectified throughout the entire film by the beast. He has no real reason. He doesn't know who she is as a person. And I think that's supported by the scene where she faints at the stable, and he carries her through the courtyard, through the castle, into the bedroom, the way that the camera deconstructs her body, her torso, her chest, her face, her neck, because he's moving through the frame and because he's moving, moving through doorways, her body becomes fragmented. That is supposed to be the moment where he, he falls in love with her. And why does he fall in love with her? Because She's a beautiful woman. So yes. I, I feel like it's giving now the end of the film the woman's version of that. I want to see that, but I don't see where she objectifies him. I don't see where he then becomes something of desire for her. I mean, I do think the camera aesthetics in the sequence are suggestive of Belle's disappointment because in the scene where the beast is dying, Cocteau exclusively works in close-up. Yes. And he is like distilling true sympathy. But then when the prince shows up, uh, the frame shifts into exclusively wide compositions. It interrupts the complete sentimentality of the moment. I agree. And even their bodies, they're so close to each other when he's the beast and she's beckoning for him to live. But then, yes, once he becomes the prince, she backs away. And then there's a uh, what you're saying, a wide shot of him lifting up from the ground. And then from there, they're in, you know, medium to wide frames. The distance between them is a standard space. It doesn't have the, the passion. Well, I mean, can, can you look at like the, the disappointment of all fairy tales and where... You, it becomes it settles into normalcy. We we fall in love with characters because of their you know, mystical or mythical or whatever larger than life look. Like the beast in this film, other than he is a complete triumph of character design. I actually think I wouldn't know why a woman would fall in love with him other than he's a triumph of character design. He looks amazing, but the way that he, I mean, his actual behavior is he's so self pitying that. You don't even really want to be around him other than he looks he looks good, you know, but get rid of all of that. Let's not talk about that. But um, the idea of you fall in love with him because he's a beast and kind of like the larger than life aspects of him. But at the end, and this happens in all fairy tales, we return to normalcy. We return to everyday life. He becomes a regular man. He may be a prince, but he's a regular man. And that's kind of disappointing. We didn't fall in love with this character because he's a regular man. We fell in love with him for these other reasons. And that's almost like the disappointment in all fairy tales like this. Like whenever there's a princess that falls in love with like a frog or something, you fall, fall in love with the frog, not the prince that he becomes. Or... But I think what the original story has to it that I think Jean Cocteau misses in his adaptation is that that transformation that you're talking about, that we fell in love with the, with the beast is Belle says that is who she loves. Belle says she loves the beast in the fairy tale. And that then when the transformation happens, it's only by way of expressing her love for the beast. And in this one, it's not by way of her expressing. We see the expression of it, but that is not what, what transforms him. That is not what brings him to this human state. Well, because she doesn't state that she loves the beast until he actually, after he became a man is when... The prince even says, you know, do you love the beast as well? And she said, yes. So that happened afterwards. 
Which I don't ever, bu- I don't ever buy that they fell in love. I her. buy that she's in love when she races to him, and then she's she's demanding that he stand up, and she's demanding that he use his claws. Like she's even demanding, "You're a beast. Use that you are a beast to survive this moment." Is that love or just being fond of someone? I think that's love. I think that many women will say that, you know, the moment they feel fiercest about fighting for the love of, 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 a, of a man or a partner is when they're telling that person, don't give up. Don't die in, in this worst moment, in your lowest moment. When I say I don't believe they fell in love is I don't see any moment where I would buy them falling in love. In the Disney animated film Beauty and the Beast, we have a montage of why she falls in love with him. Yes. And it may be a simplified reason of her teaching him how yes. to be a human, but we never we never really get anything like that in here. Every instance of of what we get of them together is like him covered in blood and smoke coming out of his hands. And whereas those are great visuals, I just don't see why you would fall in love with someone because of that. I do agree that that is a problem with the adaptation. You're right. We don't have moments. We have moments where he's gazing at her, to, to Zach's point. He continually has her as an object. She becomes a part of the finery that's in his castle. But no, we don't see where she then adores him. We don't see where she finds, you know, that she wants to be in his company. I'm trying to remember, though. Wait a minute. No, I'm getting it confused with the fairy tale. Because in the fairy tale, there, there is that. We do see them falling in love. In both versions, Villeneuve and Beaumont's version, we do have an expression from Belle. There's one time where he's late to dinner and she says, I missed your company. I, I, was, I looked forward to the evenings. Um, they she does that do that in she, this film as well. She's expressing a fondness for him, but again, I don't know anything about his personality that would make her miss his company. Other than pure animal attraction, and if that's the case, I think Borchek's The Beast works better because she has sex with the beast in it. But I do, I do have to admit that that is something that I think is missing from Jean Cocteau until the scene, until the scene where he's dying, is we do miss the passion of the original text. In the original text and the story, the Greek story that it's based on, Belle has sex every night with the beast, but she can't see him when they're having sex. In Psyche and Cupid, which is what many people believe to be the architecture of the Beauty and the Beast story and, and other stories, other fairy tales as well, Psyche has sex with Cupid, but she can't see him. And it's in these passion and fervent nights of what they call husbandry, you know, the process of making a woman your wife is the process of, of having sex with her. That is when she, be, she has this attraction. Um, and, and yet this film, Jean Cocteau's film, is very fantasyful, but it lacks that kind of passion. The other thing that I, th- perhaps, is that if we look at these two characters within this film, I think they're both people in a state of evasion. The beast has evaded society because he is hideous. And Belle, in some ways, is evading, depending upon your reading of the film, like her sexuality. And I felt almost felt like the ending where they ascend into the clouds is sort of this this complete evasion into the imagination. The death of the beast has now prompted her to access her own imagination. And maybe that's coming from, to some degree, all of Cocteau's films. I do think the beast in this situation embodies the role of the poet. You know, he's exiled by his audience. He's living with ghosts in solitude. And I think where this film explores the allegory than, say, Orpheus, where Orpheus is the exiled poet, I, I do think that the beast maybe is, he is serving as the inspiration to evoke an awakening in Bell. So the objects in the film grant Bell access to that compassion, that empathy, and then her own imagination. I do think that what we see that is is endearing or attractive about the beast is the vulnerability when he does give her the key when he tells her that the that Diane's pavilion is the the heart of his power when he says take the mirror also and the mirror and he specifically says these objects are objects to me you know I'm thus vulnerable to you 
because I give these things to you. Uh, and that is that is absolutely a classic aspect of fantasy for women is that the man will give his power. Um, and that's also a fear that we see in literature is that like Samson and Delilah, the woman will take the man's power. Well, in a way she, she does it in this as well. I mean, it, she ultimately decides to stay at her house and kind of her uh, laissez-faire uh, yes. guarding of the key is allows it to get stolen. I mean, at first the key is placed in a very intimate, puts it in her, in her bosom. But then, yes, you're exactly right. Is she then discards it and doesn't even think of it? I mean, it's like it's simply on like a, on a table by her bed. That's <laughs> and I mean, she explains to her sister. I mean, her conniving sisters and her conniving brother what the key does, and they know the magic words of the horse. I mean, <laughs> I mean the the magic words of the horse they learn from the merchant. But yes, she's not protective. But I agree with you. She's not protective of him. Until the end, and that could be because in Jean Cocteau's adaptation, he's imagining that it is by the moment of loss of the beast that then she feels all her passion and her love for him. It seems more that maybe Jean Cocteau saw this as a tragedy, more so than he necessarily saw it as a love story and saw the beast as a tragic figure. I do think that the interpretation, Zach, that, that the beast embodies the poet could be very well true. I mean, I think the uh, a theme that Cocteau imbues in the story that with that wasn't present in the text is the emphasis on the animalism, but the inability the to resist the urge to hunt, I think to some degree is fueling the tragic elements of the film as well. Yes, he uses the smoking hands as this motif for when he has hunted or when he has been a beast. And then once he has transformed, the gloves sit at the riverbank, the smoke is coming back into the gloves. But it never really seems to threaten Belle in any way. Um, I'm curious. There seems to be tension between the de Beaumont and de Villeneuve tellings and that de Beaumont's is much leaner, it's abridged, and maybe like kind of pedagogic, whereas de Villeneuve is more concerned with how narrative functions within the Baroque sensibility. So in which is why people consider her telling more erotic. I guess what I'm curious about is is with Cocteau working exclusively from the de Beaumont written story whether you guys found that the film reinforced her morality or if, if you even thought the film subscribed to a particular moral code at all. I do think he refrains from a strict moral expression other than judgment of the sisters, their vanity. He does have Ludovic chastise Avenue. He says, I'm a scoundrel, but I do not want you with my with my sister but the typical morals that come in fairy tales are usually directed at women and Beaumont falls in line with this and they are to express to women be cheerful be obliging and you will you will marry royalty and usually as as is with this one the woman is the daughter of a merchant even if she originally is the daughter of a fairy and a king. She now is in the care of a merchant. And, and it's, it's a direct reflection of the bourgeoisie values that were happening when a lot of these fairy tales were being transcribed and recorded from their oral traditions into written traditions was that France was going through a, a rising of the middle class. And you had these people with titles that had no money marrying you know, merchants, which were below them because they don't have blue blood. But you can have your blue blood by being a, a princess at heart. Beaumont definitely falls into that. But what I think I see is Jean Coteau trying to deal with pulling um, even Beaumont's story into something that can happen on a stage, something that can happen on a film. So streamlining it more, making it more focused, and really working with that in his adaptation. And I do think, you know, his invention of Avenel, which I think has a thread of the prince that, the, that Belle dreams about, 
Because I think he wanted to root her love in a real man as opposed to a dream man. But I, I think it's still problematic how he does that. And maybe that's just because this is how he sees men. He sees men at the same time that they may be loving and say, will you marry me? Once you deny them, they will then be aggressive. But I, I think he does not have the kind of moral dictation that Beaumont or that other fairy tales have, which is be a certain way, be chaste, be demure, but be cheerful throughout all obstacle. Don't be you know, morose. Don't be melancholy. And by all means, don't be, don't be challenging. In fact, he has her be very challenging um, when she does push Avenue off of her, but also with the beast when he is, when his hands are smoking. And she, you know, I do like the framing. She's framed in this door. She's wearing the opulent clothes. She becomes more than a princess. She becomes a queen. And her body language is formidable in that doorway space. And I think that he is, that's something that he's doing that Beaumont didn't do. Uh, when uh, Simone brought up the like kind of like chastising of the vanity of the sisters, uh, in a way that kind of rings hollow as this film is incredibly vanity rich in itself. Uh, the the tears of Belle becoming diamonds and the way that he shoots the uh, the the castle like a gay funhouse. It's kitsch. But what I'm saying is, Cocteau seems to love the opulence of the story as much as say the sisters love or have a desire for the rich things in life as well. Like he seems to love it as just, just as much as they do. So anytime he does kind of chastise them throughout the film, it does kind of ring hollow. Yes, I agree with you. I think that's an interesting parallel because he, we definitely see he enjoys the arms with the candelabras a lot, as, as I think he should, because it, it is visually captivating. Um, he enjoys using the reverse uh, motion to make things move in a way that you wouldn't expect them to move. Um, we see it more in Le Sang des Poets. The, his, he uses it so much. He's very opulent in all the um, illusions of film. In relation to the way that he has the character design of the beast. I mean, he is a beast. He even says, call me, call me beast. And yet he's perfectly quaffed. His clothes are magnificent. He's very unbeastly other than the fact that he's hairy. He looks more fabulous than anyone else in the movie. He is very rich in that regard, but I think there's a contrast that he wants to do with that. A contrast of the ugly and the opulent. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's absolutely nothing ugly about him. No, he look he looks like a a beautifully groomed cat. Yeah, I mean he's pretty magnificent looking. <laughs> the the fact that the beast is played by his boyfriend I think says a lot. Yes, and I don't want to get too far into that autobiographical fact. And and it's something I actually appreciate about Cocteau is that he does lovingly admire the bodies of his performers and even specifically Jean Marais, like particularly when Marais approaches the frame bare-chested. But I, I do think his framing is very aware of giving space for the actor to work. He wants you to be able to see the body and its completeness. But I do think, I do think that the beast is hideous. Even if today, to our eye, this lioness man is not as hideous as could be, I do think that there is a ferocious repulsion that, that you immediately are met with. Maybe this is just my experience with the film in having seen it uh, a couple of times, but I've always felt that you identify and empathize with the Beast more so than you do any other character. I do think you do that. I think you emphasize, I think you sympathize with him. I think you understand him, but I don't think that his look is not... You never fear him. Right, but I, yes, and that's what I said. I did say that, I, that there's never a feeling that Belle is in threat of him. But I think that for Jean Cocteau, in his time period, I think this was a hideous image. I just don't see for a 1946, for a 1946 audience, I just don't see him as hideous. Or five years after Universal's Wolfman, you could say that's hideous for its time, and you can tell that 
the beast in this is meant to be handsome looking. And I think that that does have to do with what you mentioned. Compared to that. He's being performed by Jean Marais. And so there is a, there is a conscious effort, effort to, to maintain a sexuality about the beast. There's even the sweet moment when he goes to hunt the deer, his ears wiggle like the cowardly lion in the wizard of Oz. That's an endearing trait. I think we're supposed no, to find him supposed, lovable. I don't think it was supposed to be endearing. I think it was supposed to be animalistic. I think it was supposed to be instinct. He does not want her to see him. When your ears wiggle like that. Yes, we see it as It's cute, done in a cute way. I don't think Cocteau's intention was for it to be cute. The way the scene is, is presented, it's an embarrassment to him. I don't disagree that he's embarrassed by it. But I don't think we're supposed to be embarrassed. I almost think like his embarrassment is even supposed to be cute. But I just think all of that that you are interpreting as being a nicety in his appearance and an, is, is more so just an expression of Cocteau saying that he's genteel even though he's a beast. He's trying to have that paradox happen at once. And I don't think that he's trying to say, oh, he's cute. Oh, he's attractive. I don't think he's trying to say he's attractive. I don't think he's trying to say he's cute or approachable. I think he's just trying to say he has, he contains both. He's out of all the men that we see, he is the most valiant. He is the one who asks her permission repeatedly, which come, does come from the fairy tale, but he repeatedly says, will you marry me? And when she says no, he retreats. Whereas the others, the other men, Lud Ludovic, and Avino and even the father are beastly, even, even, you know, the men who carry the sisters, you know, and they're stumbling and whatnot. There is a clumsiness, there is a beastliness to them, and that's to be contrasted. Well, she even says at one point that there are men far more beastly than you are. Right. So I think his efforts are not to make him attractive. I think they are to make him genteel. Something that I was thinking about in regards to uh, the role of objects within this film. And as I, I really think it's a film also that objects sublimate the narrative structure, the beast's magical objects serve as, you know, metaphorically the essential tools of the artist, and they allow he and Belle to explore those creative impulses. And, and in some ways they're similar to like uh, the characters in Little Prince, where they serve as transitional objects, the horse, the glove, the key those all provoke motion within the narrative. But I also think what's intriguing about this film and, and the fact that it relies heavily on object identification and uh, object-based symbolism is how those elements can create a visual archaeology in that. You know, we're able to chronicle the trajectory of, say, how a mirror is used as a visual symbol in films Mirrors often were used as providing individuals with a vision into the future. Whereas here Cocteau is using it to represent the unconscious thoughts of his characters. Whereas in The Blood of a Poet, he uses the mirror as a form of transporting between different realms of time and space. Uh, <clears throat> when looking at, since I'm kind of interested in this because Borichek, he made The Beast, which, you know, you can loosely tie to Beauty and the Beast, of course. And he's so obsessed with objects, almost like it's almost like a fetish to the way that he films objects. But he doesn't do it as in these are objects in which we can create, but almost these are the things that have been created that I want to highlight. These aren't tools that will help me create. I want to highlight the, their creation. The rose in that film, I think, signifies so much more than what it does in, say, this one. This one is almost like a tool to get Belle there mm -hmm. to the castle. Whereas, uh, I mean, the rose becomes like a sexual organ of an unseen man, I guess, penetrating an orifice. I do think in this film, what's interesting is the choice to replace the ring with the key. And I do think that that is deliberately sexual in replacing a, a suppressive object with an object that has like a, a phallic suggestion. Mm -hmm. Well, ring, I mean, how you said it, a ring, I mean, is kind of a, um, you said it as a, an oppressive object. Suppressive. Suppressive, excuse me, suppressive. But it too can also be like a crude sexual idea. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But we're replacing a feminine 
sexual object, crude object, with a male sexual crude object. I mean, yes, I do. I do think that you know, on a visual and functional level, yes, the key, you know, has more of a phallic place, whereas the ring is is more of a, you know, um, coming from a yonic or you know, cunning space place. Um, but typically, the ring, the what ends up being how the ring is used is is to bind and to possess a female as opposed to an expression of her own ability to possess. But I think that's that's something that's happening because you have both men working with both those objects. So the men interpretive psychological approach to both those objects are what's enforced. Um, what I do think is interesting is, you know, uh, referencing Maya Duren again, we see in Meshes of the Afternoon a clear comparison of the key as consensual entry versus knight, a knife as non-consensual entry. And there does seem, there is the thread that comes through in La Belle et La Bette that the, that La Bette asks every time, will you marry me? And when he receives no, he does not respond the way Avino responded. He recedes and accepts that no. So I do think that here the key can very much be consensual entry, um, an asking to unlock as opposed to a forceful penetration, which may be the arrow, um, because we do see that object of the arrow multiple times in the The key film. is stolen to use for unconsensual yes. entry. Yes, yeah, and I think that is significant. Um, and and then the person who does that is met with his demise, you know, by being unconsensually entered by an arrow. So I do think. But what's objects, curious about it that is that they don't end up using the key. They end up breaking in. They end up coming in in an mm-hmm. even more, you know. Um, Which maybe again violent, speaks to I don't know ma- male attitudes, even with the consent they still will seek to To, enter in the most violent way possible. So that's our show for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation on Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Special thanks to co-hosts Andrew Swope and Simone Barros. Andy can be heard on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast, which can be found at stephenandy.blogspot.com. And you can read Andy's Blu-ray reviews at rockshockpop.com. Simone Barros can be read at stochasticartworks.tumblr.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the film or respond with any feedback, you can do so by sending an email to filmjivepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Google+, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes feed where you can leave a review, which will really help us out and reach a larger audience. And please be sure to visit audibletrial.com filmjive to start your free audible.com trial today. Thanks for listening. Check back in a few weeks for our next episode. And until then, remember to keep on jiving. Mm